Lord, we love you and we trust you. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 7. <coughs> and. Yes. Thank you. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 7. Uh, But in order to pick up there, because this is all one chapter, I would like to go ahead and read the whole thing. So let's read together. Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built an altar of God, built an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept the Feast of Booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and off, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the month to the seventh from the first day of the seventh month <coughs> they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord but the foundation of the Lord was not yet la- the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid so they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had been, that had been from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel, (coughs) and his sons and his brothers... I'm sorry, and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. And when the brothers laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of the king of David, and the, according to the direction of David, king of Israel. 
And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the Father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. As we come to this text, I just want to remind you of last week. We covered the first half of this. <coughs> and what we want to remember is a couple things. One, uh, the all is done or is written according as it is written or according to the rule. When they rebuilt the altar, they did everything according to the rule. They did it the way that they were supposed to do it. They did it according to the law of Moses. <coughs> they built this altar. Second, all is done at the right time. It's done at the right time in the right season. Seven months, they're done at the right time. Indeed, so much is this at the right time that now in this, in verse 13, we see that they do it in the second year. Here in the second year after the coming to the house of the Lord in the second month. And that is the same time that Solomon had begun to build the first temple. That's the same exact time. So they did it at the right time in the right season. And all is done with the right motive. So I want you to, to grab hold of this, is that when they rebuilt the altar, everything was done at the right, with the right rule, at the right time, and all is done with the right motive. They did it with free will offerings. They did it with all the other offerings. This is a, and I, and I want you to kind of grasp the scene. This is a wealthy people coming back to the land. And we know they're wealthy because Haggai is going to scorn them for some of their wealth later. Not now. He does that in the next chapter, which we get to study next month. So here we see this idea that he is, uh, that God has orchestrated for the Jews to come back and they do everything according to the rule. They do it at the right time. They do it in the right place. They do it in the right place. The altar is built, but the foundation of the temple is not built. Foundation of the temple is not built. Um, <clears throat> so, we have this uh, picture here of uh, the altar being rebuilt in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then in chapter 6, it says, 6b, it says, But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So the foundation had not been laid. The altar was built, and they are offering sacrifices on it. We talked about that at great length last week. They've got everything going. They've got sacrifices going continuously. The sacrificial system is back, but there's no temple. There's no temple built. It's an altar in the middle, which is beautiful, because it's the altar that brings men to God. It's the altar that brings men to God. When Abraham is in Genesis and he builds an altar, he builds it between Bethel and Ai. It's one of the most beautiful pictures that we have. It's a beautiful word play in Hebrew. You've got the house of God where 
Jacob will meet God, where the people of Israel will meet God, and then you've got I, which is translated ruins. So you've got the house of God and ruin. Ruined men, the city of ruins. And you've got the house of God and the city of ruins, and in between the two, where the two can meet, where they can come to meet God, is at the altar of sacrifice that Abraham sets up between God and man. Indeed, we come to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through the rescue of Jesus Christ. There need not be a temple for us to come to Him. We can come before Him because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. We are able to go to God. We don't need a religious system. We don't require a religious action or a religious building or a place of ritual. We have the sacrifice of Jesus and at its core, at its core, salvation is granted to us in Jesus Christ. And there is delight in building the temple because we have access to God in Jesus. So now we get to rejoice in the building of a faithful love for Jesus in becoming the temple of God himself. As it says in 2 Corinthians, you are the temple of God. And in 1 Corinthians, you are the temple of God. You, plural, as a group, have become the temple of God, are being built up into a temple. In 1 Peter, you are precious stones being laid by God on top of the cornerstone. You are the temple of God himself. You are being built into this temple. And the foundation of Jesus Christ is laid for us to be built on top of the gospel that we are saved in him and how beautiful that is. So they rebuild the altar and there is a prophecy that is fulfilled. And this prophecy is both grace for them and warning. Remember all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, we get warnings that this is not the end temple. This is not the end of things but is rather a shadow of the greater temple which is to come, which we know of as Jesus Christ indwelling his people and the final temple of glory that we read about in the book of Revelation. Right, This beautiful picture of all mankind coming before the Lord and every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him and bowing down, throwing crowns down, everybody singing the same song in their own language, which is wild. So, here's the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60 verses 10 through 14 that we see foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you for in my wrath I struck you but in my favor I have had mercy on you your gates shall be open continually day and night they shall not be shut that the people may bring to you the wealth of nations with their kings led in procession For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, and the pine to to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, band all who despised you shall 
and all who despised you shall come down, shall bow down at your feet, shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So in that prophecy, I hope you saw foreigners come and they rebuild the wall. Now here in the verse seven, it says, so they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. This prophecy gets fulfilled from Isaiah right here. They're bringing literally, I mean, you you read it. They, they bring trees, cedar trees. And it's mentioned right here. Lebanon comes and brings trees to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So they, they bring these foreigners come to rebuild the walls. And God, who struck them down in his wrath, God, who was angry with Israel and sent them into exile, has now restored them and begun to bring back that which was lost. However, note in the prophecy that these are kings and nations that are coming to help Israel. And note that there's a little bit of a warning here. These are kings and nations coming to help Israel rebuild, to bring things to Israel. Israel is having to pay for them. Note in the book of Ezra that it says, according to King Cyrus, according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So there's a warning here given to the reader that we should understand that Israel is not yet a nation with a king. Israel is not yet the ruling kingdom that is ruling the earth. Rather, Israel is in a desperate state and is relying on an outside pagan king for the ability to do things that were inherently natural to him. Israel is having to rely on the favor of the earth. So they're relying on Cyrus and they're having to pay outsiders. So we have these two warnings to start with that they're having to pay outsiders and they're having to rely on Cyrus's edict. There's just two warnings and they're warnings to the reader because the reader is supposed to recognize that the reader needs a greater king, that Israel needs a greater king. It needs a king who will serve as prophet, priest, and king of over the people who will change the hearts of man, who will rule on the earth and overcome all sin and darkness. The reader should read this and go, there's something missing. And what joy do we get that we know what's missing? We know what's missing here. We know that we need Jesus. And we get him. We get access to God Almighty through Jesus Christ. And we get salvation through him. More than that, we get joy and life and worship through Jesus Christ. How beautiful is this? Now, they begin to rebuild the foundations. In Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we see that they begin to rebuild the foundation. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, 
Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, <laughs> made a beginning. I love that. My Bible actually has that ending a line with a comma, and I know that there's more to the sentence, but I love that phrase. They made a beginning. That phrase, they began, they started. They just started. Sometimes in life, all we have to do is make a beginning. This is something that I think we ought not to despise small beginnings. Sometimes it's a matter of just doing it. God calls you to do something and it's just a matter of getting started. It's not a matter of getting it perfect or doing it just right. Though they were following according to the law, like we saw, they were obeying the law of God. Though they were doing that, let us not despise small beginnings. These leaders begin. They, they make a beginning. They start. The foundation, of course, is more than a building. These two make a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen and the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers. Now, they start and they begin and they have a foundation that they see needs to be worked on. They, they see that this foundation needs to be laid. So I want you to understand how they felt when the people came back and they saw the ruins. And so I, I can't help but maybe just imagine with me what it's like. You come back to a place that has been utterly destroyed where you had worship day in and day out for years, for hundreds of years, where you were a kingdom of people, where at one point the world was looking to your little kingdom as the direction for the rest of the world. It was a mighty but tiny kingdom. This was a kingdom where the king's the great powerful nations came to do battle against this kingdom and they would lose miraculously. Remember the story when they lay siege to Israel and the king of Assyria mocks God. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah, just relax, he's lost. I mean, that's John Elkin's paraphrase. There's a whole bunch of chapters in there, but that's basically what he says. Relax, he's lost. And then the entire army of Assyria gets wiped out and a bunch of lepers pillage their camp. This is a God who is amazing. This is a kingdom that was powerful and that was strong. And in Lamentations chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 5 verse 15 through 22, we can understand better in Jeremiah's words how this must have felt. So, Lamentations 1.1 How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this 
our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So we see this lament. I want you to understand this is how they feel. They're coming back to a place that is utterly decimated. The glory that once was there is decimated. But look in the middle here. O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. There's this hope that God will restore. So they come back and there's, everything is destroyed. They've lost everything. Their houses are gone. Their, their temple's gone. The building, the walls of the city lie in ruins. People come in and out, taking what they want and walking off. There is nothing here for joy except for the hope that the Lord rules forever. So we see the foundation and the way people feel. <laughs> they, feel they felt like it was in ruins. They felt like it was in ruins. And they've got this great uh, difficulty going on where the whole city lies in ruins. Now, let's back up just a second and see there in verse the second half of verse 8 where it says the Levites and all who came to Jerusalem from their captivity they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites and their sons and brothers so they appoint these these Levites to oversee the work. They go and they grab all the Levites, they oversee the work. The people's hearts are broken and they long to see this adjusted. They long to see this changed. And they, they go and they appoint the Levites to oversee the work. I, I want to just take a moment to note, one, a application for leadership that we see here. And then two, I want to confess to you that I'm not good at this. So, the first application for leadership here is that when you are in leadership, you should identify people who are good at a task and pay them to do the task. Put them in places where they can accomplish the work or do the work. They, these Levites recognize that they're in charge of building the building, but they are not carpenters and masons. They are priests. And they don't know how to do all these things. So they go find people who do and they put them in places where they can do them. This is often called delegation where you give someone else the responsibility of doing something for the kingdom. So as a good leader, one of the things that, that Zerubbabel and Jeshua do is that they, they give work to other people. They hand it off. They go, I can't do that. You want to do it? I can't do that. You want to do it? Now, confession time. I'm not good at this. As a pastor, 
I'm awful at this. Mostly because I think to myself, well, I'll just do it. I'll, I'll just do it. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if I can do it. I'll just be like, oh, I'll do it. And I'm really bad at it. And it's not out of selfishness or pride or anything. It's just some, I'm wired this way. I see something and I go, well, that needs to get done. Well, I'll go do it. I'll, I'll do it. I'll try. And I will do a horrible job at whatever it is if I don't know how to do it. But I try. I do it. Now, so I'm not wired that way. So I, I, I confess that to you for two reasons. One, you need to understand that God uses these leaders and there are leaders who are gifted in administration and in, gifted in identifying other leaders and, and putting them in places where they need to be. And then there are leaders who are, who are not gifted in that way. And I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not gifted that way. The second reason I tell you is because if you see something that needs to be done here, please just do it. Don't ask me. Don't, you know, don't come to me and go, hey, can we do this? Because my initial thought is going to be, well, I'll try. I'll try to do it. And then it may not get done. So just, if you see something that needs to be done at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, just do it. I was asked recently, how do you, uh, at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, how do you, I was asked by another pastor, how do you identify leaders and put them in positions of leadership? And I just kind of chuckled and I was like, the people come to me and they tell me they're going to do something. And then I go, cool. <laughs> and, and, and that's been the, the way things work here. Uh, and honestly, that's the best way to work with me. If you see something that needs to get done, just go tell me, hey, I'm going to do this. And I'll be like, thank you so much for just doing it. Thank you for recognizing that I would never have seen any of that and that I'm grateful for it. So confession time and a leadership principle. Leadership principle, which I'm trying to get better at. Please forgive me. I am trying to get better at it. Leadership principle, identify people who have gifts and use them in those areas. Personal confession, I'm not good at this. Help me out. Um, And I'll try to help you out with areas that you're not good at. So this is one that I'm just going to confess honestly. uh, I struggle with. Um, So Zerubbabel and Jeshua appoint these Levites. Now Levites, just to be clear, in Scripture we have multiple places where the Levites are described uh, and, and how old they were. They were from age 20. This is the youngest that they get appointed to anything. 20, uh, 20 to 55 is their work age range. Um, now, more commonly, they're age 30 to 50. That 20-year period is when they serve. At age 50 to 60, they were kind of like uh, Levite emeritus, right? Like they were around and they were there for advice. They were there. They would come to the councils if they needed to, but they weren't given specific roles from age 50 to 60. They were kind of... Uh, Levite emeritus, and they were just there in case they were asked questions. The youngest Levites are these in this passage, 20 years old. And that might be out of necessity. It might have been a pragmatic thing where they just didn't have enough. And so they were like, well, we'll lower the age from 30 to 20. And you find those ages listed in the book of Numbers um, where they are given for service. Uh, So we can see how they were and where they were and all those things. So... um, the Levites don't build themselves. Rather, they, they go and they find other people who are capable of building. And the priests that are responsible to ensure that good people are put in good places to do good work. A wise leader delegates. 
um, when appropriate. Now, the foundation is, is being laid, and we need to understand the foundation is more than just a building. The foundation is more than just a building. The foundation is everything about this. Everything about this passage is part of the foundation being laid. And foundation gets, they see the this foundation in ruins, they begin the building, and as they begin the building, we note there in verses 10 uh, that the Levites come with their vestments and they come playing worship music. So they come to play worship music and it's beautiful and they've got cymbals clanging. So they've got drums, they've got loud cymbals, they've got rhythm, they've got music, they've got trumpets blowing, they've got singing happening. The Levites come and they lead worship services while the temple is being laid in the same time according to the direction of David, the king of Israel. <laughs> so the foundation is being laid. They worship according to the direction of David in second, in first Chronicles 16, four through seven. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief and second to him was Zechariah, J.L., Shemirioth, Shemirmoth, Jehiel, <clears throat> Metithiah, Eliab, Benaniah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres, and Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Asaph had the fun job. He was to sound the cymbals. And Benaniah and Jezael, the priests, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. And then on that day, David first appointed thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So Asaph and his brothers bring worship as directed by David. Foundations are laid with worship. Foundations are laid with worship. When we pursue something in life, we pursue it first and foremost with worship. Two things about worship I just want you to see. Two things about worship I want you to see. One, it is done corporately. Worship is done corporately. The definition of worship, one of the best definitions of worship I've ever heard was worship is the reaction of God observed. Worship is the reaction of the God observer. Somebody who sees God and then reacts to it. That's what worship is. So we see worship is the reaction of God observed when they start laying the foundations, they're remembering their history, they're remembering David conquering and the Ark of the Covenant being brought back to Israel, and they're remembering the altar, and there is worship, and Asaph comes with his cymbals and drums, and everybody's blowing trumpets, and there's song and dance and music. Worship is the reaction of God observed, and it is done together. It is done in corporate worship. You live a lifestyle of worship as a Christian. And in that lifestyle, you are to live it together. Second thing, worship is always, always, always sacrifice. It is always sacrifice. When worship does not feel comfortable, that's good worship. When worship feels like you're giving up a little something, that's good worship. Worship is always 
sacrifice. And we get that from Genesis 22 when Abraham first uses the term and says, I will take my son, my only son, up this hill. He and I will go and worship and return. He's taking his son to sacrifice. And he calls it worship. That is the definition of worship. So worship's done together. And worship always, always requires sacrifice. So these brothers and sisters gather and there is a foundation being laid and worship breaks out and they begin to sing as assigned by David. Worship is orderly and not chaotic. It is done with song. It's done with song. Now, just a side note. If you don't like to sing, I'm sorry. God has borne up in the heart of men song. And there is something that you're missing if you don't force yourself to do it. Now, I know there are people who don't like to sing. I would encourage you. I do not like to do math, but I have to do math occasionally. This is kind of like math for you. You should learn to sing because it's good for you to learn. And it's good for you to do. Indeed, you were designed at some level to sing at some level. So I would encourage you to work hard to get good at singing response to the Lord. Because it's all over Scripture. It's all over Scripture. It was written into your heart. It's in your DNA. Just do it. Just push yourself to do it. This is a good thing for you to do. God has written into the heart of man song. And we are to sing. Uh, so they sing in the foundations. The, the foundations are laid with praise. And we see that here in Ezra chapter 3, uh, verse 11 through 13. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. The word for steadfast love there, of course, is <coughs> the Hebrew word hesed, which is a word that is so much bigger than steadfast love. We translate it steadfast, loving, loyal, kindness that is always forgiving and never holds a grudge. First uh, Corinthians 13 is basically an exposition of that Hebrew word. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it does not seek any record of wrong, it does not keep any record of wrong, it does not seek self-exaltation, it is not First uh, Corinthians 13. I wish I had it memorized a little more sharper. But that's, that phrase, hesed here, is what's being used here. For he's good and his hesed endures forever towards Israel. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of their father's houses, old men who had seeing the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So the foundation is laid. The people feel sad and depressed and like they're they're failing until this foundation gets laid. They do so according to the song by David. And they lay this foundation with praise. Now, all these foundations are laid with praise. That the Lord is good and faithful. 
and great, but we have this interesting uh, parallel here. The old people see it and they go, this is not what it used to be. And the young people see it and go, yay! Now, we, we see this all the time in our culture and in our world. The elderly or older people, I'm careful not to use the word elderly, older people look back and they go, I remember when I would come to worship and there was just fire in the building and the people of God were rejoicing and, and the, it seemed like just the word of God dripped off everybody's tongues and that people were just overflowing with the word of God. And they, they desperately wish that that was how it is all the time for them now. And they look around and they go, our culture just doesn't. It's not the same. It's not the same. And they weep for it. And they go, I wish that this were like it was when I was young. Then, contrast that with the young people who come into a church and they go and they hear the word of God proclaimed and they hear the word of God spoken and they hear expositional preaching and they, they hear music that matters and they hear things that make a difference and they see a community of faith that is delighting in each other and they go, yes, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've wanted for so long. And you've got both of those people coming to the same room. Got both of those people come to the same room. And they need to learn from each other. They need to learn from each other. The young need to listen to the old and recognize that there's a passion that used to be there that maybe was different. I'm not going to say better, but was different. And that maybe had a different appeal. Maybe had a different feeling about it. They need to listen to them and recognize there's wisdom there application point read old dead guys go find some old dead guys old dead baptists old dead puritans go find their old books and read them read them they're great you will find great joy did you know that in the puritan society of the 1700s it was common language for someone to come to a church and ask if you were supra or super lapsarian or sub lapsarian. Are you super, supra or supa or, or sub lapsarian? Now, I say that because most of you don't even know what those words mean. And if somebody was to come in today and ask that question, there'd be a couple of us. I mean, there'd be a few of us that would go, yeah, I know what that means. And then we'd probably chuckle. Like, why are you asking? Like, no, nobody cares about those things. And, but that was common knowledge among uneducated, illiterate farmers at that time. That was common language among uneducated, illiterate farmers at that time. The Puritans had a massive amount of theology, a massive grasp on it, and a heavy grasp on theology. They had a lot of issues with practical things. Oh, they had more problems with practical things than we do. If you don't believe me, go read some of the diaries of some of those Puritans. And you will see a lack of holiness, a lack of private uh, devotion. You'll see a lack of fervor and love. 
and an extreme legalism. Great theology. Wonderful theology. Read it. Oh, delighted in it. Read it. Great theology. Let it challenge you. But remember that there is zeal now that was not there then. And it's different. So read old dead guys. Read old ancient confessions of faith. You ought, to, you ought to have some of those in your library. Old confessions of faith. Heidelberg Catechism. Westminster Conf- Confession of Faith. The 1689 Baptist Confession. If you want to be real fun, have the 1611, 1649, and 1689. And line them out together and just mark where they're all different. And it's fun. The, I mean, if you're a nerd, it's fun. And so... You can enjoy those things. You can enjoy the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed. You can enjoy these various things and you can read them and delight in the faith of the past. You can also read new, relevant, hip, exciting, godly leaders who are tested nowadays, who are young, who are fired up about what is going on in the world today. You can also read them. We have a mingling of ancient and modern together we have every generation that mingles together and the younger generation needs to listen to the older generation and the older generation needs to be inspired by the younger generation we can't do that if we don't talk to the other generations so we've got to identify and talk to these generations Indeed, what we have here is elderly people who had seen the original temple weeping. And they weep openly. They're sad. They're depressed. They weep openly. (coughs) Sorry, I had this extra couple texts here. Um, These are some texts if you want to read on about about praising the Lord. I had some extra texts in there that I'm moving past. But don't worry. I've got them written down. I'll give them to you. The... um, the older people gather with the younger people and they worship together and the older people who had seen the foundation are depressed and the younger people who had never seen the foundation are excited and they both reactions are so extreme that it's this loud noise that can't be distinguished. That can't be distinguished. Mourning and praise can't be distinguished. But there will come a day. There will come a day when our Lord returns. And the praise of the saints will overwhelm all mourning. And the praise of the saints of God will overwhelm everything. And the the shout of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will go out as a cry to the Lord. And the earth will tremble at the coming of the Lord. And we will rejoice. And there won't be this sad, sadness mingled with happiness, this memory of the past mingled with hope of the future. There will only be Jesus and the present, and we will be there on that day to worship the Lord, throwing our crowns before Him, because Jesus Christ has died and risen again, that we would have life, (coughs) have life abundant. Oh, the foundations of our worship are laid in praise. They are laid in praise. I've got these verses here. Psalm 34. I'm going to let you look these up later just so that we can run. Psalm 34, 1 through 4. I'll bless the Lord at all times and praise will be continually on my mouth. And Isaiah 57, he praises the Lord uh, saying that 
the Lord uh, is His dwelling place and the place where He is. In Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 26, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial and struggle, Paul is locked in prison, and what does he do? They start singing songs and praising the Lord, and the earth literally shakes, and the prison literally opens, and they are able to walk out. Psalm 35, 28, Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and your praise all day long. Amidst trial and difficulty, in Psalm 35, the psalmist praises the Lord. In Habakkuk 3, verse 17 through, 16, through 19, remember Habakkuk is the <coughs> Why God book. Why does this happen? Why is there justice? Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my strength. God is my Lord. Is my God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then we have Psalm 103, verses 1 through 6. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, all that is within me. And you go on. And then Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through Him, then, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Our foundations, our hope, our life is laid in praise. We praise the Lord as we build the foundation. As we do the work of the kingdom, as we work the gospel, as we offer our lives as living sacrifice, we do so through praise. Now, we respond to the Lord in worship always. We have a greater foundation than that of Israel. We have a greater foundation than that of Ezra and Israel and Nehemiah. Our greater foundation is Jesus Christ. So we have these worship responses, the elderly weep, the young rejoice, and then we have this great foundation. I just want to close with this this morning, the greater foundation that we have. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid the foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone a, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be put to shame, depending on your version. <clears throat> in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe in Jesus, who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, our foundation stone. This Jesus is the stone, just in case you were wondering, just in case you were wondering where in the Bible it refers to Jesus as the foundation, as the cornerstone, right here. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the Jewish people is what he's, he's talking to Jewish people in this passage, uh, which has become the cornerstone. Peter speaking to the Jews, uh, or actually Stephen speaking to the Jews. Um, so then, and, and we want to finish with this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Uh, we're going to finish with this almost every week, by the way, just so that you, you might want to start memorizing it. It's great. So then you who are no, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Now, we come to the Lord having a greater foundation than anyone could ever imagine. We come with an altar that has been laid upon the sacrifice greater than any could ever imagine. And we get access to God now. Indeed, not only is our foundation laid, not only is the sacrificial altar put up for us, but we get to be part of the temple. According to Scripture, we are the temple of God. A temple not made with hands. We are something greater than the former temple. And one day, just imagine with me, that day when heaven and earth is, is no longer separate, and we see the sky split open, and we see the temple restored on earth, and we see perfect worship made here. Just imagine with me the shout of praise that will go up. There will be no weeping or mourning over the former things because the former things will have passed away and all things will be made new. And we will have a new kingdom with the perfect prophet, priest, and king reigning with us, walking amongst us, making his dwelling place amongst us. And we will live forever in that glory. How beautiful is this picture. And Ezra and Nehemiah slowly paints this picture for us. But we have a greater foundation than they had. We have a greater foundation than they had. Only believe and trust in Jesus Christ and that foundation is ours. Lord, we love you and trust you. Thank you for the salvation of our souls. Thank you for life. Lord, be glorified in us as we love you and we love others. Amen. As we come to a time of communion together, I would invite you to make this your prayer. To remind yourself of the forgiveness of God and Jesus Christ that you've been given. If at this time you need to ask somebody to pray with you, now's the time to do it. Grab them and, uh, and pray together.
moment as we partake of your body and blood, as we partake of the bread and the cup, that you would remind us of your grace in the cross and the great salvation which you have wrought. Lord, we love you. Amen. As we take communion, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, who is trusted in for salvation, this is for you. If there's any reason you should let this pass, please feel free to let it pass as I come around. And if you're the head of your household and would like to serve your family, um, take the elements from me as I come around.